Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Omniverse podcast. Things have been a little hectic around here, of course, when when aren't they? But uh, particularly so, thanks to Balticon. Had an absolute blast. Got to meet some fabulous podcasters and fans. Uh, some of the highlights were meeting Dave Robeson of the Writers Roundtable podcast and uh, getting to see folks like Nutty and... Uh, and Lucy and just all of the the great folks too many really to name uh, getting to share the table with Paul Lagasse and Gary Lester and with Channel 37 and uh, and of course Laura and Nicole and it, it was just it was awesome there are people there that I didn't get to see or spend much time with uh, shout out to Uncle Monster uh, it's great to to meet him and spend some time with him um, there were a lot of people who weren't there this year, unfortunately. Uh, Zach Ricks wasn't there, and, and Doug Rapson, and a couple of other folks that I really would have liked to have seen. Uh, but that's that's going to be the case. Uh, I hope to be there every year myself, but I know there are going to be years where that's not going to be possible. Next year, if you have an opportunity to get out there, I really, really recommend it. Without further ado uh, about that, I just want to let you know a little bit about this story that's coming up. Uh, this is Battle of Wild Spitze. It was written by Zach Ricks and I, gosh, two Balticons ago or thereabouts, I think. And uh, it was a lot of fun writing it. We've since done several stories in this shared universe that we've developed. Uh, links to those in the show notes. Uh, this is available uh, on Amazon and Smashwords. And I... I highly recommend that you go pick it up uh, and the other stories in the universe this is voiced by veronica jaguer and jim perry two excellent voice actors and i strongly recommend that you check out their respective projects they're both incredibly talented and i'll, I'll link to their sites in the show notes as well uh, both of them have been the podcast sphere for years and uh, I, I respect them a great deal and, and appreciate them voicing this for me uh, I, I did the production on this uh, played with uh, sound effects a little bit so uh, tell me what you think of that uh, without further ado uh, here is Battle of Wild Spitze by Scott Roche and Zach Ricks Nora sighed despite the gorgeous surroundings the scenery was of course brilliant the sky was a crystal blue, and fluffy clouds swam by. He stood on a modern miracle of metallurgy, engineering, aeronautics, and thaumaturgy. He was bored. The airship Columbia 12 made its way over the Swiss Alps, delivering a cargo of something or other that was probably very expensive, very urgent, and absolutely positively had to get to England on time. He shook his head, looking out over the side. The whole thing had seemed so romantic and adventurous when his talent had first made itself known. Now, eight years of discipline and hard work later, he had to confront the fact that there were simply no real adventures anymore. Or, at least, there weren't for him. He caught a glimpse of Miss Bennet stalking down the length of the airship and immediately came to attention. Her eyes would catch any out-of-place detail, and her tongue was wickedly sharp. One of the other cadets working protection for the airship claimed that she'd been married once, and that the husband had died under mysterious circumstances. Norris had no doubts at all about what had happened. Her husband had done something wrong, and Miss Bennet had killed him. He shuddered involuntarily at the thought, but he didn't doubt for a moment that's what had happened. It had probably been very precise, very quick, and there had been nothing left of Mr. Bennet but a slight charred spot and a bit of ash drifting through the sunbeam coming in from the window. The fact that Miss Bennet only came up to his sternum was by no means an indication of her prowess. She'd run the cadets through their paces when they'd arrived at the Columbia in Turkey. Their posts were assigned with a few curt words, delivered in her New World Colony's accent. Good flamework, engineering. Nice focus. Navigational detail. She'd come to Norris and paused for a moment. 
security, she'd said. No other comments, no compliments, just the single word, and she'd moved on. Once they'd gotten underway, she'd found plenty to talk about, from his appearance. Judging from your size and the generally sloppy nature of your dress, I'd say we'd accidentally captured a blonde gorilla, Mr. Tilney. To his clumsiness. Do try not to tread on the passengers if you must go below, Mr. Tilney. To his eating habits. I dare say, Mr. Tilney, that I'm amazed at how you've managed to develop so robust a physique on a diet of nuts and berries. The one thing she absolutely insisted on was constant drilling. Laura saw the small collection of targets in her hand and shuddered. He had yet to hit all five targets, although he'd done slightly better than Barrington. Poor Ted had hit only two the last time, and Miss Bennet had assigned him the enviable duty of scrubbing the metal fixtures on the bottom of the airship. Still, that hadn't been as bad as what had happened to Chalmers. Chris Chalmers had been all competence and smiles when he'd come aboard. He'd let fly with a fireball at the first target during his initial test. Before anyone could see what had happened, he'd been tumbled to the ground, and Miss Bennet had been pinning him to the deck with a boot to the chest, and her wand had been inches from his face. "'Tell me, Chalmers, have you had your brains burned out, or is that rather unusually shaped melon above your shoulders, in fact, hollow?' Chalmers had gaped and tried to respond, but Miss Bennet had backhanded him in the face with her wand hand— and he'd been too dazed to say anything. Then she had turned her icy glare to the rest of the cadets. Can anyone here identify how Mr. Chalmers has almost killed every single man, woman, and child aboard this ship? No one had dared respond. These airships are full of hydrogen gas. Highly flammable Hydrogen gas. Chalmers had been temporarily reassigned to the kitchens, and word was he'd be sent to engineering after this cruise. Miss Bennet strode by Norris. He had just started to feel his spine unclenching when she turned on her heel and strode back. Her loose brown hair framed an oval face. Her blue eyes sparkled with what he assumed was malevolent glee at the prospect of putting another one of her cadets through his paces. A uniform consisting of loose white breeches and shirt would have been scandalous on a more socially appropriate woman, but with Miss Bennet it was simply what she wore. "'Well, Mr. Tilney, we come to it again. Let's see if your eyesight has improved in the last two days, shall we?' Of course, the undercarriage could always use a brisk swipe and polish. She said it all with a smile, but there was iron in her tone, and her blue eyes were hard. Norris swallowed. Very well, ma'am. He removed his wand from its place on his left sleeve and stood ready. Mentally, he was considering whether the undercarriage safety harness would fit him or not. Five targets floated above Miss Bennet's hand for a moment, then one of them shot away. Norris carefully considered his aim and let fly with an icy blast. The target was instantly frozen over and plummeted towards the ground. Two more targets sailed away, one of them zigzagging furiously. Norris blasted the easy one first, then squinted slightly and let fly. He clipped the veering target, but it continued to maneuver. Norris saw it swinging around as though preparing to make a run on the airship. It continued to dodge and twist. The fourth target sailed off, and Norris gave it a blast before it could get too far away. He blasted again at the dodging target, hitting it solidly. It hit the surface of the airship with an audible thunk and slid down the silk canopy. Norris glanced down at the fifth target, but it was already gone. 
He looked up and back, where the last target was sailing off into the distance. He raised his wand and let fly, firing lower than perhaps was ultimately warranted. He narrowly missed a gentleman taking the air on the deck, but the target went white and dropped. Mr. Tilney turned back to see Miss Bennet's thoughtful expression. Well, I suppose you haven't completely dishonored yourself, or me. She gave a level gaze at the shivering gentleman on the causeway. Although our esteemed passengers may beg to differ. I dare say he'll be looking to walk by the engines to warm up. However, your ability to hit anything that can actually maneuver leaves something to be desired. She pointed at the slightly damp place where the zigzagging target had impacted the side of the airship. Were that anything larger than a small bird, we'd have a tear in the outer canopy to deal with and possibly a damaged gas bag. You realize what that would mean, correct? Nora sculpted. I expect at that point we'd begin to sink, ma'am. Ms. Bennet nodded. Well, you may redeem your primate ancestors yet, Mr. Norris. And in order to prevent our sinking down to the mountains below? We'd have to repair the damage, and possibly lighten the load in the meantime, until the engineers and mages could repair the damage and replace the lost gas. Indeed. And I'll give you one guess at the first thing I'll be throwing over the side, Tilney. Norris blinked. Uh, I imagine I'll have a pleasant view on my way to the ground, ma'am. At that, Miss Bennet actually laughed out loud. It was the scariest thing Norris had ever heard, and he involuntarily stiffened further into attention when he heard it. I dare say you will, Mr. Tilney. Perhaps you'd better devote some time to studying the potential for using magecraft to enable human flight. I believe the ship's library has a volume or three of Newton. She considered him again. Very well, cadet. Carry on. She turned and continued down the length of the airship. Once she'd gone below... Ted Barrington came over. The slight cadet peered around Norris's bulk at the staircase where Miss Bennet had descended into the airship. Good job, Norris. I never would have gotten that one that was reeling all over the place, and the fifth one, uh, that, that was a very good shot. Norris shrugged. I don't know what she's so worried about anyway. He scratched at his blonde mutton chops. There hasn't been a dragon sighting around here in months, let alone an attack. I heard the engineers talking, and they're wondering if the dragons have started migrating like birds, or hibernating like bears. Or they've all flown off to Australia, where they're being trained and ridden like horses, no doubt. Norris sighed again, staring off into the sky. Dragons. Might as well be concerned about a plague of frogs for all the likelihood that they'd see any real adventure. Twelve months of cruising back and forth from Turkey to Dover, with nothing to look forward to but the occasional grilling by Miss Bennet and target practice. At the Academy, they'd spoken about some of the different kinds of assignments they might get. Some would be assigned research, others would train new magi. Alexander had hoped for anything that would allow him the possibility of travel. His head was full of wild surmises. Perhaps he'd be assigned to guard an embassy in far-off Bombay or Shanghai. Even Italy would have been something. He'd wondered if he would be assigned to protect the silk trade in the Orient, or grain shipments from the colonies in the New World. There he would have to deal with native shamans— powerful magi indeed, and perhaps have learned something of their methods. But, no. Here he was, stuck on an airship, plodding its way through the sky. The first day had been exciting. 
but all too soon, Norris had come to understand that the scenery never really changed. The sky was still blue. Clouds were still white. The ground changed a little, but it was so distant to see over the curve of the canopy that it may as well have been a rug in his mother's parlor. Ted was still talking. And they say an attack could come at any time. I'm sorry, Ted. What were you saying? Ted looked hurt. You weren't listening. Honestly, Nora, sometimes you really do try one's patience. Barrington stamped his foot in consternation, but he quickly regained his conspiratorial glancing. Cookie was saying that he's heard rumors of pirates moving into the high places around the Alps. Pirates who are working with the dragons, maybe even offering to share treasure with them. Barrington was practically bouncing with excited anticipation. Alexander waved a hand to dismiss the story as yet another one of Cookie's wild tales. Cookie had once insisted that he'd been in the seraglio of the Sultan himself while visiting in Turkey, and had been forced to cover himself with a veil when the Sultan's eunuchs entered. Obvious poppycock. If Cookie could bake bread half so well as he tells stories, we'd be eating like the King of France, Barrington. You remember that tale he tells about the seraglio, right? But he's got the veil to prove it, Norris. He could have bought that veil anywhere. You can pick one up in Dover if you know the right places, and then tell all the stories you like so people don't pay attention to the way the food actually tastes. Ted smiled and shook his head at his friend. I don't care what you say, Norris. I believe him. And if the Sultan ever found out... Norris rolled his eyes. It would be considered an act of war. Yes, yes, of course. Ted laughed and headed back to his side of the deck. Norris considered Ted's story for a moment. If only it were true. If only it were the kind of thing that really happened. He began pacing the deck side of the airship he'd been assigned to, staring out over the side of the Columbia Twelve at the unchanging sky. He'd wanted a life of adventure and excitement. He'd thought that his magical talents would get him there. Instead, he would be spending the next year or so bouncing back and forth between Turkey and Dover like a shuttlecock. At least he'd have the occasional opportunity to see Istanbul. Once a month or so. He shook his head again. Eventually, he'd probably get used to it, and it would be all over for his dreams of adventure. He frowned at that thought. For a moment he considered the possibility that he'd wind up like Cookie, spinning stories for gullible cadets who didn't know any better and already had their heads full of the nonsense that this would be a life of adventure. He suddenly pictured himself surreptitiously showing a tiny cadet a veil he'd purchased from a shop in Dover and blanched. At this point... Dragon-riding pirates would practically be a mercy. Florian eased his wyvern into a steady glide with his legs as he gazed at the airship through the brass tube. Runes floated just at the edge of his peripheral vision. At the moment he saw each human body in shades of red and orange, their bodies standing out in stark contrast against the cool air. The main gas bags also gave off a great deal of warmth. Based on what he could see... There were approximately four dozen bodies on board, barring any shielded sections. Satisfied that the numbers were consistent with the intelligence they were given, he snapped a different rune into place with a flick of his eye. The overlay changed from oranges and reds to shades of blues and greens. For an instant his other eye opened in surprise, making it hard to focus. A brilliant cerulean glow suffused the entire vessel. The mana readings were off the chart. The expected mages stood out in bright hues. One or two were tending the engines while a few more walked the upper deck. None of that accounted for what he was seeing. He was about to snap the field telescope closed when a series of bright blue flashes caught his eye. Using only his legs, he guided his wyvern into a climb. 
Donna resisted and Florian tensed his legs, driving the cold iron studs on his inner thighs into the tough hide. The wyvern hissed, but complied more readily once the discomfort sunk in. With one eye on the potential target, he gained altitude. The particular hue of the flashes indicated that it was an attack spell, but judging by the readout, the power level was low. Perhaps someone was just having a lark? It couldn't be a warning shot directed at him, since there was no way the dirigible could know they were being watched. He would be nearly impossible to detect on his own. Until he and Donner gained cloud cover, however, he wouldn't feel safe. He stowed the scope in the leather and wood case hanging from his saddle, grabbed the reins, and guided his mount into a steeper climb. The powerful wing beats of the dragonling scooped the air behind them, and soon they were enshrouded in white. His riding leathers kept him warm, barely, but the cold and the possibility of impending conflict invigorated him. The alertness awakened an impulsive restlessness in him. He touched the bolt thrower strapped to his back. One well-placed shot could puncture a gas bag, sending the Columbia and its passengers to the snowy peaks below. That was assuming there wasn't a sufficient magical barrier between the cloth and the pure mana that the crossbow's enchanted cousin spat out. He didn't think there was any such barrier, but it was better to just call back to base and let his brethren know that a new target presented itself. Anything else risked the wrath of their leader. Retrieving booty from wreckage might be easier than boarding it and fighting hand-to-hand, but a loss of anything both valuable and fragile or flammable would mean his head. And if his attack failed, he would merely alert them to their coming doom. He scrubbed at the face of what looked to be a wristwatch with his thick gloved hand removing the ice crystals forming there. The signaling device glowed green at his touch. He tapped out a rapid series of beats on it, the color changing to red at each contact. Airship and area, Columbia 12, expected number of passengers and crew, Mana levels exceed expectations. Please advise. After a few seconds, the dial flashed white back at him in time with the chiming originating from crystals embedded in his ear flaps. Through long practice, he read the pulses, and it was as though he heard the voice of Alexei, their wireless operator, in his head. Hold position, sending reinforcements. He nodded and sent an acknowledgment. Satisfied that the Columbia had moved on a pace, he dropped out of the cloud and pulled the spyglass back out of its case. Sharp, dark brown eyes picked out the speck of gray in the distance. He focused on it again, wanting to keep tabs on the ship until help arrived. He grunted in satisfaction as it popped into view. Donner eased ahead on wide wings, ensuring that they wouldn't lose track of the immense vehicle. Five minutes of windblown silence passed as slowly as the airship below him, broken finally by the steady whoosh of the wings. He stowed the glass again and swung Donner around to bring the pair on the same bearing as the dragon and its crew. They had been patrolling a relatively short distance away as the dragon flew. The truly enormous dark green creature that flew below him could carry one of Hannibal's elephants in its claws. Its broad skull was painted deep crimson, and the spikes along the crest of its narrow snout were enameled black. The color scheme matched the banner that flew from the howdah on its back, a red skull on a black field. Florian's own flight suit sported a similar badge on his right shoulder. Eight crew and their equipment filled the platform on the dragon's broad midsection. Four swivel-mounted brass deck guns gleamed in the sun, one at each corner. Aside from the diverse personal armament on board, those were its sole man-made weapons. It was a rare thing for their mounts to use the weapons nature had given. Trying to control a dragon in a melee was something no pilot could train for. This particular animal, Jaeger as he was called, was piloted by Leopold, their leader's right-hand man. Florian was heartened to see Leopold in the pilot's position. They would only be charged with harassing the crew of the airship and figuring out their strengths and weaknesses, possibly wounding it in the process. Boarding it and perhaps bringing it down would be the job of their own airship, the Blutstern. Still, facing whatever was on board the Columbia was something he didn't want to do without the best men they had. The mana readings he had taken earlier hinted that this would not be an easy run. Florian matched the airspeed and brought Donner over Jaeger, only a few meters separating them. At this distance, they could communicate verbally over the wireless wrist units. The screaming winds and powerful wing beats made normal conversation challenging. He held his to his mouth. Good to see you, Leopold. A tinny voice came back through the crystals. And you, Florian. I see our target. Florian could see one of the gunners training a larger version of his spyglass on the dirigible. Though they were still a fair distance from being in range, the crew was readying their guns. 
Their eager expressions were apparent from this distance. Yes, so what are our orders? He felt almost certain they would be the standard harassment orders, but he didn't like to assume too much. You are to hold position relative to the target. Baron von Richthofen wants to be here personally before they are aware of our presence. He has a personal stake in this, it seems. The crystals weren't great in delivering nuances of sound, but Florian could detect some hint of amusement in the dragon pilot's voice. Or perhaps it was awe? The Baron didn't usually get involved in the activities of his privateers directly. The man was a brilliant pilot, though, and had the mind and spirit of a warrior. The thought of this Commonwealth vessel in their airspace probably had something to do with Richthofen wanting to be present. While the Kaiser could care less, the Baron was a bit more protective of the motherland than their current leader. There was probably more to it than that, though. He shrugged. It was all too far above his level for him to try and figure out. All he cared about was that it presented a chance to put some holes in an English gas bag and perhaps acquire some booty on top of that. How long till we act? A static, muffled chuckle filled his head. Always the eager one. Current course and heading for the Columbia puts it intersecting our own airship and the Baron's personal mount in twenty minutes. That did get Florian's attention. If the Baron was bringing his own mount into play, then it would be thrilling to see. The wyvern he flew was absolutely majestic. To see the look on the English faces as the three flying creatures came screaming out of the clouds would be wonderful. Of course, once they had seen the dragon riders, no one in the dirigible could be allowed to survive. As far as he knew, no one outside of their own country knew that dragons and their cousins could be ridden. He hoped that in the coming wars, and he knew that there was a war on the horizon, he could smell it, that they were truly preparing a wing of the Luftstreitkräfte that would be entirely wyvern-based flying in the service of his country instead of skulking about, even in the private army of a man like Baron von Richthofen, was unimaginable. He tightened the straps on his goggles and pulled at his gloves, a nervous habit. The sense of pride he was filled with was almost too much to bear. Whether he lived to serve his Kaiser or not, he was serving his Baron and would soon fly beside him. Now was not the time for boyish imaginings. He snapped out the bolt thrower, its arms extending automatically as it came out of its harness. I will be ready. Another chuckle filled his ears, but he ignored it. Norris was still pacing about the upper deck when Miss Bennet found him. She seemed even more perfunctory than normal as she approached. Tilney! Norris immediately stood at attention. As Miss Bennet approached, she tucked a stray piece of chestnut hair back behind her ear. To be honest, the motion was particularly unnerving, as nothing about Miss Bennet was ever out of place. Norris stood straighter. This didn't bode well at all. What did you do before your talent was discovered, Tilney? Norris blinked. Ma'am? Answer the question, you great ape. Magic. Before. Your. Job. Or your family's work. She paused for a moment as Norris tried to grapple with the sheer unexpected nature of the question. Spit it out, man. What did you do? Well, Norris fumbled. My father was a blacksmith, ma'am. He couldn't for the life of him think of a good reason she'd want to know that and imagined she'd immediately leave to hunt down someone else. After all, a blacksmith's son... A stable boy, really, wasn't going to be much practical help on a zeppelin hundreds of feet in the air. You spent some time around the animals, yes? Norris felt his forehead crease and tried to smooth it by sheer force of will. Oh, yes, ma'am. Father would be shoeing horses or oxen. It was my job to look after them before I came to the academy. How old were you? Norris shrugged. I'd been doing it since I was six or so, ma'am, and I came to study magic when I was about twelve. Norris swallowed and dared to risk the question. May I ask why you need to know? Miss Bennet was nodding, but she wasn't looking at him, and she didn't answer his question. With a final nod, she set her jaw and peered at him. Tell me, Tilney, can you keep a secret? 
She immediately dismissed whatever Norris's answer would be with a wave of her hand. Ah, never mind. If you breathe a word of what you're about to see, if you so much as imply anything about what you're about to do, I'll kill you myself. Is that understood? The big cadet swallowed. Yes, ma'am. He ventured a smile. As you said, it is a long way to the ground. Hmm, yes. Keep that in mind, tell me. Yes, ma'am. What else could he say? She turned and began walking quickly back to the stairwell. Well, come along, then. Norris followed without a word. Still, his mind raced. What could she possibly want with him? It wasn't as though they'd have horses and oxen on a zeppelin. They went down the spiral staircase near the rear of the craft. While passengers used the staircase near the nose, cadets used this staircase to come up and down from their quarters, a small structure at the bottom of the great gas bags. She stopped at the roof of the quarters and waved a hand. With a shimmer, the railway faded from view, and a pathway extending toward the tail section of the zeppelin appeared. Before he could stop himself, Norris let out a low whistle. <whistles> nice glamour work. The railway even feels real. For all intents and purposes, it was. Follow me. And mind me, Tilney, if you try to come back this way without a proper escort, the path won't be there. Norris nodded. For a moment, he rather felt like Alice, curiouser and curiouser. The path led back to the rear of the zeppelin, to a structure built into the framework up against the outer skin of the craft. It was almost like a small barn, Tilney thought, or a stable. He almost ran into Miss Bennet, who had stopped and turned again to face him. She nodded. All right. Do well here, Tilney. Impress me. I think you've probably got the best chance of any of us. You're big enough. You've had experience working with animals, and you're a fair hand with magic. I think you can do this. They tell me the key is not to show any fear. Got it? You've got to remain calm. A part of him wanted to shout at her. He settled for a raised eyebrow. After all of this, no explanation but threats, a secret passageway on the very zeppelin they'd been traveling on. She wanted him to remain calm. He grimaced and took a deep breath. He let it out slowly, remembering the techniques they taught back at the academy. Control of emotions is the control of self. Control of self is the control of magic. He repeated the phrase three times as he took another deep breath and let it out, then nodded at Miss Bennet. He felt the tension leaving his arms and shoulders. All right, ma'am. She nodded turned and opened the door. Inside, the area was dimly lit with red lamps. Miss Bennet jerked her head at the open door, and Norris slowly stepped inside, letting his eyes adjust. To either side, there were men standing, rather close to the door, he thought, but they were staring at a shadowy lump in the corner. Norris stopped just inside the door, and the men inched their way out. Norris felt his face twitch just once as he realized that they were leaving him alone with whatever was in here, and then he took another deep breath. He breathed out slowly, looking at the irregular lump. He slid his foot forward about six inches and eased his weight onto it. A rustling sound came from the lump, and it moved a little. Norris eased a little further into the room. Ma'am, he called. Miss Bennet's voice came from just inside the room. You're doing fine, Tilney, but be careful. 
It's very agitated. Norris nodded. Of course whatever it was was agitated. He slid his other foot forward and the lump shifted again. Now Norris could make out what almost looked like what couldn't be a giant nest and an enormous bird sitting on it, glaring at him out of a wide black eye. He swallowed hard and began to take another slow step. The enormous bird's head shot up and snapped at him once with its beak. It rather sounded like a whip-crack, Norris thought. The thing was almost as big as a horse, and he could see its tail whipping in the corner. Easy there. Easy. He raised his hands out to his sides with the palms facing the giant eagle. It's all right. I'm here to help. He had rather hoped the bird would settle down once decided that he was harmless, and he slid his foot forward. That's when it leaped forward, placing itself between him and the nest. It lowered its head and screamed at him. Norris blinked. He'd heard an eagle scream before, but this was different. Oh, it was lower and louder, but this was to be expected. The thing was huge. But the scream finished up as more of a bestial roar, and as the head lowered and the hindquarters came into clear view, he gaped openly. The huge wings and feathered head and forelegs gave way to the hindquarters of an enormous lion. The name came unbidden to his head. Griffin. We're carrying a griffin. And then he remembered that he'd seen its tail whipping and hadn't recognized it. A gift from the Sultan of Istanbul for His Majesty's court, Ms. Bennet said. The second of a matched pair. The female, in fact. At that, Norris froze. He glanced back at the corner where he could make out the round shape of eggs in the middle of the nest. Were carrying a griffin and a clutch of its eggs? How in the flaming? Language, Tilney. He began to take a half-step back when Miss Bennet stopped him. Freeze! You cannot show fear and you cannot back down or it will consider you unworthy. Or food. Norris nodded and brought his feet back together. Instead of backing down, he widened his stance slightly and lowered his hands out to his sides. He kept them open and facing the griffin, hoping she could sense that he wasn't a threat. Now, she's been perfectly calm for the most part. It's only in the last hour or so that she's become agitated. Why? What's setting her off? What? An ingenious question, Tilney. You do your orangutan cousins proud. Of course, we don't know. One moment she was fine, and the next she was all bristling, hissing, and snapping, according to her keepers. Norris wondered for a moment why they needed him if they had experienced keepers, then shrugged the thought off. Instead, he considered the attitude of the animal. Judging from her stance, I'd say she senses some kind of danger, and she's protecting her nest. There's nothing here for her to fear, and nothing inside the paddock has changed. Norris considered the matter for a moment. Well, perhaps something outside the paddock has changed. Something outside the paddock? How does she know what's going on outside the paddock? Tilney had no idea. He'd actually said it out loud without thinking. Well, she's a magical creature, isn't she? Perhaps she's sensing something we can't detect. A natural enemy, a threat to her young, some kind of magical disturbance. What kinds of things might a griffin consider threatening? Norris heard a sudden gasp. He didn't dare take his eyes off the griffin, but he sorely wished he could have seen the look on Miss Bennet's face. 
damnation and hellfire. For a crazy moment, he wanted to chide her on her language, but sanity quickly reasserted its control. There's only one natural enemy to Griffin's Tilney. Stay here, do what you can to keep her calm. I'll go inform the captain and ready the other cadets. I think the Zeppelin is about to be attacked by dragons. Norris Tilney wished for another sudden relapse of boredom, one from which he wouldn't recover any time soon. The Blutstern was a much smaller dirigible than the Columbia. It wasn't built for distance or comfort so much as it was speed. Twelve hardened pirates stood ready in the gondola, supported by five airmen. It also wasn't the weapons platform that the Dragon was, its armament consisting of two light guns and the small arms carried by the crew. The truly unique thing about the vessel was the ballista mounted underneath. Once whatever it faced was neutralized, a massive bolt would be fired, trailing cable to reel in the wounded fish, allowing it to be boarded. Baron von Richthofen kept a pace with the dark gray dirigible, mounted on a beast a third larger than Florian's mount. Both Wyvern and Ryder were camouflaged in shades of white and gray. For the moment, his half of the pincher attack was concealed by flying through a high mountain pass that ran perpendicular to the Columbia's course. He held his wrist close to his mouth, hailing the Blutstern. Is our target still maintaining its course? The voice crackled at him. Yes, Baron. We will make contact with it in five minutes. We have signaled Leopold, and both he and Florian are ready to attack at our signal. Good, good, von Richthofen nodded. Signal him when we are within one minute. He dropped his hand, not needing to know that his men would follow orders. They had been handpicked for a mixture of loyalty and ruthlessness. Some might call them evil, but to do a job like this, one didn't hire schoolchildren. He had plans and would do whatever it took to accomplish them. His hand checked to make sure that his saber was still in place, strapped to the saddle. Hand-to-hand -hand combat was unlikely, but his father and his father's father had carried the sword into battle. It was as much a good luck charm as anything else. The real weapon was tucked safely in his left glove. The wand was also an heirloom. Carved from a human femur and bound in silver, it allowed the precise handling of a great deal of magical force. Most didn't know that he was an excellent sorcerer. He preferred to keep it that way. His father hadn't approved of the occult tutelage that his mother provided him. The elder von Richthofen trusted in technology divorced from magic. Mother said it was because he had failed in his own studies and was jealous of the talent his wife and son had. That meant he needed to learn in secret if he didn't want to be disinherited. When he came of age and took his father's place, the habit of secrecy remained deeply ingrained. Fingers brushed the wand and he reached out with arcane senses. There was something special on the Columbia— he could barely make it out, but it wasn't a feeling he recognized. The English certainly had a complement of sorcerers on board, he knew that much. That wasn't what he was detecting, though. Not knowing maddened him a little. Not wanting the emotion to cloud his judgment, he pushed it aside. The cargo wasn't as important to him as it was to his men. He simply wanted the Columbia destroyed completely. If the English lost enough important cargo and vessels in this area, they would be forced to send a military contingent. That would force the Kaiser's hand. Richthofen had tried for years to convince the old man that if they were to be taken seriously as a world power, they would need to expand their borders. Manpower wasn't an issue, nor was weaponry. They had enough of both to crush any enemy they came up against. All that they were lacking was a leader with the vision and the drive to do what needed to be done. The Kaiser simply didn't have the drive at the moment. And Richthofen knew what he had to do. He had to create that drive. So the Baron would continue to use his private army until the English had had enough. When the English king finally sent men and arms in sufficient strength to defend their property, either the Empire would take it as an act of war, or von Richthofen would convince the people that the Kaiser was a weak and foolish old man. Either way, to sustain a lengthy war, the people of Austria would need to annex the resources their neighbors had, and he would get what he had always wanted, for his country to be truly great. Baron, we are within one minute of contact with the Columbia. Jaeger will begin engagement. Twin booms echoed from a point no more than a mile distant. Warning shots fired across the English airship's stern. The white and silver wand slid free from its home and began to crackle. Vigo! He urged Altes to increase airspeed. The beast responded admirably, soon outstripping even the fast airship. 
His magic, a simple enough spell, magnified his voice to a roar. Once he could see the English ship, he spoke again, this time in perfectly accented English. Attention, Attention Columbia! You will surrender your vessel and its contents to the skulls. Do this and you will live. With a flourish, a bolt of fire flared from the tip of his wand and blossomed into a fireball a few dozen meters to the ship's port side. Fail, and you will suffer the consequences. As Norris watched, the griffin turned away from him, looking back and forth between the two sides of the hold. What's going on? Does she not know where the attack is coming from? Is it so close she's panicking? What? The griffin suddenly fixated on a single point, staring at the back of the hold. Norris felt a sinking feeling as he saw the creature crouch, its muscles bunching in preparation. It launched itself at the dark wall, and as it hit, the wall sprang free, falling away to the ground far below. It turned, having knocked the door free, and looked for a moment at Norris. Oh. Oh, no, Norris said, holding his hands up. But it was to no avail. The creature seized him in its talons and launched itself back and out the open air. His scream of fear mingled with the griffin's own scream of challenge. As it flew, Norris tore his eyes from the dizzying ground swinging wildly beneath and saw the giant dragon approaching. He screamed again. The griffin arced back away from the dragon, up and away from the approaching red and black terror. Up and over the bag of the zeppelin they flew. Norris suddenly felt himself dropping through the air. He hardly had time to draw the breath to scream for an anticipated third time when he landed on the upper deck of the Zeppelin. Barrington was gaping at them both as the griffin dropped to the platform beside Norris. The great beast nudged Norris with its beak, pushing him to look out away from the great dragon, at the Zeppelin approaching from the opposite side. Over the echoing voice of the oncoming pirates, he heard the amplified voice of Ms. Bennet's curt reply. If you think we'll surrender, you know nothing of the honor of Englishmen. Or of Englishwomen, you pirate bastard. Norris wasn't so sure what his own feelings were on the honor of Englishmen, but the words stirred something in him. A sudden sense of... adventure. He grinned. An hour ago, he'd been bored. Then suddenly, he'd been confused, scared, amazed, and terrified, and now suddenly he realized he was having the time of his life. Florian saw the creature fly out of the Zeppelin's hold with a man in its clutches. He recognized a griffin when he saw one. All dragonkin were dire enemies of both the griffin and the magical construct, the hippogriff. As a pilot, he had been trained, as best one could be, to be on guard against how his mount would react to the presence of one. You couldn't really train, per se, though, since it wasn't like they just had a griffin waiting on a shelf. Donner tried to surge ahead under Florian, and with every bit of skill the pilot had, he kept it in check. Unfortunately, there was no way he could do that and draw a bead on the upper deck of the ship. At this range, and with the problems he was having, there was a great risk that he might puncture one of the main bags— it was unlikely that the mana alone would cause ignition, but a big enough hole would ground the ship and that order hadn't been given yet. He looked over his left shoulder to see where Jaeger was and how he was reacting. Dismayed to see that the gun crew was having just as much trouble as he was, he turned back to look at the Baron. The man was the epitome of calm in the tempest. Part of that could be chalked up to the distance, he supposed. The magically amplified voice of their glorious leader cut through the air like the crack of a wing. Of English honor, I know only what I have seen on the walls of our houses of ill repute. If you do not stand down, then I will be forced to pick through the scraps of what is left of your fine vessel. Brave words aside, the Baron was a man of action. He drew a bead on the Englishwoman, and an arc of lightning closed the distance between them. Norris saw Miss Bennet deflect the oncoming bolt back at the approaching pirate Zeppelin. The bolt went wide, but then it was quickly followed by an icy flurry from the other two security guards atop the Zeppelin's upper deck. Barrington was doing all right for himself, Norris thought. After all, Zeppelins were much bigger targets than the tiny skeet they usually used. 
A scream behind him from the griffin reminded him that he had other, larger problems immediately at hand. He saw the creature launch itself into the air, rising to challenge the large dragon, and the much smaller wyvern that accompanied it. Suddenly, Norris realized the implications of what he was seeing. Men? Riding dragons? Such a thing had never been supposed. He blinked in shock. Barrington's rumor had been all too true. A near miss from one of the gunners aboard the large dragon brought him round to himself again. Both of the dragons seemed to be following the path of the griffin in the air with great interest, and Norris took advantage of their shock by launching a fusillade of icy blasts at the big one. They bounced from the thick hide, but served to bring the head of the beast back around to focus on him. Wonderful. I've got its attention. He was still grinning. He let fly with another blast straight at the thing's head. Come on, you vile beast! Vile beast? He gads, that's the best I could do. With a mental shrug, he fired another icy blast. Florian's wrist communicator pulsed at him. Get your mount under control! With a curse, he slapped a knob on the saddle horn and brass blinders scissored shut over Donner's eyes. Wyvern were sight hunters, so as far as the thing was concerned, the griffin became much harder to detect. It calmed him enough to be controllable, much like hooding a hawk. Now that Donner eased a little, Florian focused on the job at hand. His main role was that of sniper, taking out targets of opportunity surgically. I need to take out that wizard on the deck. While the magic the huge Englishman was using wasn't likely to hurt Jaeger, the crew was another matter. There was no good cover for them in the howdah. You are loading chain shot. Stay clear, Florian. Leopold's orders crackled in Florian's ears. He hoped that his countrymen would be careful where they aimed. The purpose of using chain instead of cannonballs was to sweep the enemy's decks free, but it wasn't terribly accurate, and there was some risk. It would help them to aim if he could do his job and give them some suppressing fire. As impatient as it seemed Leopold was for his men to fire on the Columbia, he wouldn't have much time to get in a clean shot. Florian yelled into his wrist communicator, Hold your fire! Let me take care of the mage first! Urging Donner on, he made speed for his target. The fixed iron sight on his crossbow began to crackle with eldritch energy. A similar glowing pattern appeared on his large target's chest. Norris glanced back at Miss Bennet, hoping perhaps that she might have noticed the large winged creatures on his side of the zeppelin, but she seemed to have her hands full with the man riding the small dragon on the other side. Energy cascaded between the two of them, while Barrington continued to fire icy blasts at the approaching zeppelin. Norris saw Burton turn towards him, then saw his eyes go wide and his wand hand come up. He turned to see what was coming behind them when he felt a blast of air push him several yards toward the tail of the zeppelin. He landed roughly, tumbling, and got up to rebuke Burton on his poor aim when he saw a smoking hole roughly where he had been standing a moment before. He shouted a thanks and waved, just in time to see Burton hit in the back. He hadn't seen the bolt. It must have been a rifle shot. The thought struck him as odd that in the midst of this battle of dragons and magic that something so mundane as a bullet could do a man in. Burton sank to his knees and collapsed. Norris gritted his teeth and turned back to the fight. Someone would pay for that. He saw the smaller dragon weaving about and the man with the glowing weapon astride it. He supposed that was the one that Burton had died saving him from. He drew a careful bead and fired. There wasn't enough time for Florian to actually pull any fancy flying maneuvers. His ability to continue drawing breath all came down to Donner still being more than a little skittish. Only the edge of the icy blast caught him. His left arm was frozen into immobility. Thankfully, his flight suit took most of the chill, but there was frostbite in his future, if he lived. The worst of it was that his bolt thrower went sailing from numbed fingers. His sharp eyes followed it as it plummeted to the ice and rocks below. There was no time to mourn its loss. Instead, he fought to keep his seat and figure out what came next. The roar of Jaeger's deck guns caught him by surprise. At least drawing the Englishman's fire had enabled his compatriots to load and fire on the Columbia with some accuracy. Florian watched some of the deck's wooden planking disappear under the onslaught. 
Movement caught his eye, and he was amused to see one of the English sailors nearly knock one of the passengers over the guardrail of a rear-mounted stairway while trying to make it to the top. His success was as short-lived as he was, the iron finding a target of flesh among all of the timber. The amusement at the gory death turned to horror as he saw one of the pieces of shot puncture the hindmost gas bag. It wasn't a large hole by any means, but the barest spark would cause the whole ship to go up in flames. At this range, Florian would wind up being immolated along with everything else in the blast radius. Norris felt the platform sag under him as the hydrogen escaped. He put a hand to his mouth, trying to keep it from flooding his lungs and suffocating him. With a mental curse, he grabbed at the seams of the torn gas bag with his magic and struggled to bring them together. The hiss faded, but didn't fully disappear. He patched it with ice. It would hold momentarily. Long enough, maybe. He turned back to the two approaching dragons. He'd managed to wing the smaller one and perhaps discouraged his zest for piracy a bit, but the big green dragon had strafed the upper deck with chain shot. What could he do? The thing was nearly impervious to his icy attacks, and he could see the men hastily reloading their guns. He glanced back at Miss Bennet. She was still engaged in a furious duel with the other wyvern rider, her attention totally consumed. He decided it was worth the risk, and he let fly with a crack of lightning at the giant dragon. The spark luckily didn't catch fire to the hydrogen that still swam around him, but it played merry hell with the men atop the giant howder. They jerked and spun as their muscles fired, and one poor soul was flung from the rigging towards the unforgiving ground below. The dragon screamed at Norris, and suddenly it was rushing directly at him. He braced himself and prepared another bolt when a flash of brown and gold shot up from beneath the great dragon. The griffin came in tight, clutched the dragon's neck with its claws, and cleanly bit the dragon handler's body in two. Norris's jaw dropped. The great dragon screamed and it reversed its flapping as it tried to catch the griffin in its jaws. The griffin released its grip and dropped like a stone back down. Norris could see the men clutching to the howder's rigging as the big dragon found itself without human guidance. Watching the great jaws of the creature as it snapped at the griffin, Norris wondered if that was altogether for the better or not. Florian watched the griffin duck and weave around Jaeger, guiding it from the zeppelin. He cursed as it evaded Jaeger's claws again and again. Jaeger followed it, teeth crashing together and saliva flying from its tremendous jaws, not a creature of the greatest intellect under the best circumstances, rage caused it to momentarily forget its passengers. The men on Jaeger's back were cast into the thin, cold air, only one managing to grab an emergency glide pack from nearby cleats. The griffin drove between Jaeger and Donner then. Jaeger followed with a scream, and Florian forced Donner into a quick snap turn to the left to avoid being steamrolled. They steadied out before coming level with the Columbia's lower deck. A thought clicked into place in Florian's mind. This was roughly where he saw the griffin first emerge from the damnable English vessel. Intrigued, he urged Donner closer to the hole in the stern. Once at the distance of a few meters, even the crude sense of smell possessed by the wyvern was enough to detect the presence of the nest. The bucking returned as though Donner wished to rid himself of Florian before moving to feast on the treasures hidden within. Unwilling to be crushed against the ship or knocked from his mount, Florian dove from the saddle in a controlled, if not practiced, movement avoiding either fate. His still warm and pliable right hand smashed against the insignia on his shoulder, activating the magic stored in the warp and weft of the fabric. While it was better than the emergency glide packs used by most dragon crews, it still wasn't true flight, but at least now he could make a controlled descent. Norris watched in amazement as the griffin led the big dragon away, but a sudden movement caught his eye. The smaller blue and its rider were approaching the zeppelin from the rear. Norris blanched. The nest. The door was wide open and the nest was exposed. He looked at the ruined stairs, but they were impassable. Besides, he reasoned, without Miss Bennet there to open the way, he couldn't have reached the paddock even if he could get down the stairs in time. He glanced toward the tail, toward the ruined sections of hull, and the rope railings that lay strewn about the deck. 
He grabbed at the nearest loose end, looping it around his waist and tying a quick knot in one end. He gave a few experimental tugs. It held. He took a deep breath, muttered a word of prayer and another of self-imprecation, and dove toward the side of the dirigible. He ran down the side of the zeppelin's skin, building momentum and keeping the rope taut. At the last moment, he gave a great leap and he was over the open air. The rope swung him down and back, and he could just make out the tail of the wyvern poking out the back of the zeppelin. He fired a blast of cold, catching the tail squarely. The wyvern recoiled, leaping free of the Columbia. At first, Norris yelled in triumph. But as he fell and the rope began to swing him back, he saw the muzzle of the animal was slick and wet, with yolk, with blood, and with feathers. He had been too late to save the eggs, and there was no sign of the rider. Moments later the swinging had stopped and Norris saw the other zeppelin dropping, so encrusted with ice that it couldn't bear its own weight any more. Norris nodded. They just might survive this day, after all. With a grunt, he stowed his wand in his sleeve's pocket and began to climb. Eldritch energy still sizzled and crackled back and forth between the other wyvern rider and Miss Bennet. Norris told himself the sizzling energy must be the reason for his teary eyes. From Florian's perspective, he saw Blutstern, the Austrian dirigible, succumbing to the power of gravity. Its gondola and rigging were completely encased in ice. He couldn't tell if there were any survivors, but he doubted it. He did know that the men on board Jaeger were all dead, save the one drifting below him. The Baron's men had lost the day. Anger mixed with a shot of fear filled him. This failure would not go well for those that survived. While there was no way they could have known about the presence of the griffin, the baron did not tolerate anything less than success. Florian would face any penalty like a good soldier, though. Florian told himself that it would not cost him his life. Perhaps he would spend a few months at reduced rank, but a skilled pilot was hard to replace, assuming they could recover Donner, that is. He turned his gaze to Altes, the baron's wyvern. Born pilot that he was, their commander apparently had no difficulty in staying on target. The fear and anger in Florian was replaced with pride. The Baron's wand hand flashed red, which could only mean one thing. There was no way that his supreme commander would let the English dogs leave these mountains alive. Better that there would be nothing left but ash and warped metal. He grinned as he floated gently towards the peaks below. Norris huffed and puffed his way up the side of the zeppelin. At first it was slow going, but once he reached a point where he could use his feet against the side of the craft— Things got much easier and faster. He panted his way to the top and bent over with his hands on his knees to get his breath when there was a terrible sound, like the rushing of a great wind, and then he felt the sudden heat. He looked up and saw the nose of the zeppelin engulfed in flame. Miss Bennet was casting icy blasts at the flames, but there were too many. The zeppelin started to pitch forward as the shriek of metallic groans announced its impending death. When the second bag went, Norris knew the mighty ship was done for, but Miss Bennet was still firing icy blasts at the flames, cooling them in one place only to have them burst forth from another. Norris shook his head. They'd been so close, so terribly close. The third bag went up below and around Miss Bennet. As it did, Norris saw her grab Barrington close and wave her wand about her head. There was a blue flash, but it was quickly engulfed in the flame. The zeppelin was really beginning to pitch forward now, and the flames reached up to engulf the tail section. And Norris heard the hiss of escaping gas. His icy patch was melting. He wormed his way out of the rope. If he was going to choose his fate, he'd rather it not be fire. A moment later, he was running for the side of the zeppelin and... The fourth bag went up, followed by a whoosh as the hydrogen from the leak caught from the rising flames. He had just leapt clear when the last bag exploded. Falling, Norris had the crazy thought that now was definitely the time to be experimenting with magical means of flight. 
he pulled the wand from his sleeve and thought, Force directed downward, but what kind, or wind directed up? He tried that, but it only sent him tumbling, and he almost lost hold of his wand. As he fell, he passed the wyvern rider floating on the breeze. Cursed Germans and their engineering, he thought. But suddenly there was a terrible shriek, and he felt giant talons closing round him. For a horrible moment, he thought the grain dragon had returned. But a glance up revealed not the leathery hide of a dragon, but the feathered head of the griffin, and held delicately in its beak was a single egg. Norris whooped ecstatically. He'd saved at least one egg after all. But his enthusiasm was quickly dampened as he thought of all those poor people aboard the Columbia. They lit in a small valley between snow-capped peaks. The griffin laid the egg gently to the side and looked at Norris. The great head bowed and one of the forelegs bent. Norris was amazed. The creature was bowing to him. He bowed deeply in return. Well, what now? he asked the creature. It didn't reply, not that Norris had expected it to. You are one of a pair, right? The other is in England, my home. I imagine there's a place there prepared. For him, for you. He paused for a moment, then nodded at the single egg. And for your child. It's far to the west, but you can get there reasonably quickly. He pointed in the direction of the setting sun. You should probably be going. No telling how many wild dragons there are in these parts, or if there are more of those dragon riders, or if that one who killed the Columbia and all aboard her is still alive. He nodded and pointed again. You need to go. Go! He turned and started walking to the west himself. No time to lose getting out of here. The griffin nodded picked up the egg in its beak, and leapt into the air. Nora sighed. It was headed east. Then it wheeled around and dove down at him. Oh, oh no, Norris cried, and he turned and ran down the valley. But moments later the griffin had him in its claws once again, and together they flew towards the setting sun. Planning a big job but don't have the manpower? Have an evil lair but not enough goons to staff it? Going up against a hero but don't have experienced toughs? Well, look no further than Harry Heist's Henchman for Hire. Henchman for Hire can provide you, the discerning supervillain, with the latest in high-quality and obedient lackeys. Want a gaggle of zombies? How about a horde of robots? Or would you like to fill out your ranks with some metahuman muscle? No order is too humongous or too microscopic. Call 1-800-555-HENCH and get your free consultation today. That's 1-800-555-HNCH. Our experienced minions are standing by to take your call. Harry Heist's Henchman for Hire. The best bet for the savvy supervillain. Hear this and more at Supervillain Corner. Supervillaincorner.podbean.com